This is an ABC podcast. 1788 and, and all that, the, the mixed consequences of, of British arrival in this country are, are top of mind for many at this time of year. That, that first fleet, it, it was a collection of stuff with which it was, was hoped to construct a, a lasting settlement. Uh, along with 700 felling axes, four timber carriages, 100 pairs of scissors and one portable canvas house. The, the cargo list is, by the way, endless. Those 11 little ships also carried a bundled collection of grapevines for the specific purpose of making wine. See, so you, you start as you mean to go on uh, from, from Sydney Cove to Hill of Grace and the Coolabar Cask. Australian wine my guest argues, can't be detached from its origins as a tool of British imperialism. And that's a story that's repeated in vineyards found around the world in other former British colonies. Her name is Jennifer Regan Lefebvre, an award-winning historian based at Trinity College in Connecticut, and she's captured wine's imperial roots. In a vintage book, Imperial Wine the British Empire, and the making of wine's new world. She joins us. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. What an extraordinary thing. I mean, it marks that list of stuff uh, that the British brought to this country, that they would bring wine, that they would bring grapevines. What, what does this suggest about their intent? I think it suggests a few things. I should mention that I'm not the first scholar to point out that there were grapevines in the hold to those ships. But what I've done is I've tried to put this Australian situation in a larger imperial context because this is happening in other places too, as you mentioned, mm. um, particularly in South Africa and then later in New Zealand. But I think there, there are two main reasons. One is that um, these colonies are supposed to pay for themselves. And agriculture is one of the ways in which settlers hope that they will be able to pay for themselves, um, that they will have a vibrant economy. And there are a lot of cash crops in different parts of, of the British Empire. So, for example, you have tobacco and cotton in what later becomes the American South, which had been British. And one of the ideas is that, well, what if we could go grow grapes and produce wine? That would be a very convenient export. It would mean that Australia would be self-sufficient in that regard. You wouldn't have to bring wine from France. And shipping wine is very expensive. Hmm. Um, it's heavy. Liquids are heavy. Um, and this is when they would, would have been shipped in barrels. So they wouldn't have been shipped in glass. But even still, it's, it's, a, it's a big deal to ship several months worth of wine with you. So I think that's part of it. There's an economic reason. But I also argue that there is a civilizing reason that this plays into the larger idea of what historians call the civilizing mission of the British Empire. So it's both to show dominance over the new land, the idea that, well, Australia is an empty land. This is what the settlers believe. Of course, it wasn't. But we can establish agriculture and we can make something good out of it and we can plant vines. And is there anything more sort of resident of, of Western Christian civilization than vines, you know, than, than producing wine is biblical. But it's also to temper the antisocial behavior of the new arrivals because there's a, a funny belief in 19th century Britain that what you drink really has an impact on your behavior. And if <laughs> yes. the working classes, <laughs> Indeed. Well, of course it does, you know, if you, 
<laughs> but the idea being that, you know, oh, the working classes in Britain, the kind of people who were looking to transport away are drinking gin. Um, you know, they're, they're falling down drunk in the streets. They're doing terrible things. Mm. They're neglecting their children. You know, if they were drinking wine, they would behave like wine drinkers. And because wine is most commonly associated with the wealthy elites, there's this idea that, well, if we can get people to drink wine instead of rum or instead of gin, they will behave differently and they will produce a more civilized society. This is also a remarkable thing because Britain itself is not a wine producer. Britain imports in, in this period most of its wine from France, from Europe, but then in its colonies to set about producing them. This sort of says something about the British imperial sense of sort of a global self-sufficiency. Completely. It also shows, you could say, amazing confidence or, or, or daring or, or hubris <laughs> that they think they can do <laughs> how this. How hard this could is what it be? <laughs> I find. How hard it could it be? The French have been doing it for, for thousands of years. Um, when I first started working on this book, I, I told colleagues, I think I'm going to write something about, about Britain and wine. And they said, that's completely daft because Britain doesn't produce wine. But that is, in fact, the reason why they're looking to find a way to produce it someplace else. So there are attempts. I mean, there's apparently a reference in the Doomsday Book to vines in Britain. Um, and there were a few isolated attempts in the 19th century to grow grapes to produce wine in Britain. But these efforts weren't really successful or even tried on a large scale until the 1970s and 80s. Now you have very good wine in parts of England, mm. um, in the southeast in particular. Um, but yes, so it's, it's the idea that we should try to produce this because otherwise we're always going to be buying it from our imperial rivals. So the French or the Spanish or the Portuguese. So it is uh, a safe bet if we could actually do some import substitution and produce our own wine, then we won't be dependent on that French wine. So what happened to those, those first fleet vines? How did they go? We, we, have, um, we have limited information about, about this. Um, you know, for, as a historian, you're always just working based on the sources that are available. Um, but they don't seem to have done very well. <laughs> um, Australian wine gets its biggest boost later in the 1830s when there's a man named Busby who experiments with bringing hundreds of different types of vines over from France and Spain. He, so he goes on this kind of European tour and he goes to different vineyards and also botanical gardens and he purchases or bargains or exchanges for, for cuttings. And then he brings those to Sydney and plants them in an experimental garden and takes notes on which ones thrive and which ones don't. And, and many of them don't make it uh, and, or aren't productive. You know, they, the, the vines live, but they don't produce good quality mm -hmm. fruit. So there's a lot of trial and error here in the early days. What's amazing to me about this story, and also with South Africa and New Zealand as well, and even India, which I mentioned briefly in the book, um, it, it's, it's amazing that this industry was so unsuccessful commercially for so long, and yet they stuck at it. And I don't know whether to think that's uh, ludicrous or admirable or both. I mean, we, we, we enjoy the fruits of it today, so I'm not complaining. But it, to me, that's what makes it such an interesting story is that there's so much trial and error and there's a lot of evidence that the first wines they're making in Australia, and not just the first ones, really, for the first 100 years, are not that good. This, or this is saved, though, with, with the importation of, of European expertise, I think. I mean, and most of the... The, the early names of prominence in Australian wine are, are not Anglo names. They, they, they come from other places, wine-producing countries. That's absolutely correct. And the same thing happens, for example, in New Zealand. 
um, where the fledgling wine industry gets a real boost from the arrival of Croatians from um, you know what was then called Dalmatia. They bring wine growing expertise. They get some Lebanese immigrants who bring their wine expertise and also French. There were Marist fathers who were probably mm. making some of the first wines in New Zealand as well. Well, this is this so, is the fascinating thing. You mentioned the, you know, the association with religion and wine. And in, in New Zealand, the, the growth of that industry is quite specifically religiously linked. It is in the beginning. Uh, and then it expands beyond the original Catholic community. Yes. Of course, there's another uh, religious uh, impulse working in a different direction in New Zealand in the 20th century, which is a temperance movement, which is which is mostly Protestant. But yes, so early mm. winemakers in New Zealand, many of them are Catholics who want to have wine as a means of celebrating the mass. They want to be able to consecrate it. But also, you know, the, the French fathers are used to drinking wine as an everyday beverage. So it makes sense to them. They have a commitment to engaging in agriculture. Um, in their mission, it makes sense to them that they would make their own wine. Take us, though, to South Africa, where the story is, is perhaps less benign. Yes, although you know, none of these stories are completely benign. But in South Africa, there's the, the, the terrible distinction of the wine industry began there under the Dutch. And from the very beginning, it was highly dependent on the labor of enslaved people, both people who were native to Southern Africa and also people who had been enslaved in other parts of the Dutch Empire and were then exported, I suppose, and brought into South Africa to work in the vineyards. Whereas in Australia, the most common, although not the only situation, but the most common situation in the 19th century seems to have been using white European laborers and using them on a kind of contract basis, on a seasonal basis. Mm. In South Africa, they were highly dependent on the labor of these enslaved people, who were people of color. So they were people who were who were black Africans, and they were people who um, were from what was known as the Dutch East Indies as well. In this country, of course, I mean, I, I use that word benign, but of course that that masks the, the, the story of dispossession in this place and, and pursuing good country to grow wine is, I, I presume, part of that story. Yes, it is. You know, I see no evidence that European settlers in Australia, mostly of British and Irish extraction, had any qualms about dispossessing Aboriginal Australians from their lands. I mean, to the extent that they even recognized that land was being used by Native peoples, they didn't seem to have any regrets, certainly no guilt, about, about taking land. A bit of they word. thought that yeah. what they were doing with it were, were, was productive. And they believed that, that the land had not been put to productive use beforehand, even though we, we, we know fully well. And I, I listened to the really interesting episode you did, Jonathan, not too long ago about Aboriginal architecture and about uses of space. And it's not just because you don't see monumental buildings, permanent structures, that space isn't being used in a really important way. And so I think settlers were either oblivious to Aboriginal land use or they were completely dismissive of it. How quickly does does that you know, industry does expand territorially uh, in this country? It expands in a few phases. It starts really in the Hunter Valley is, is the first kind of home of Australian land where it really takes root and establishes itself. The historian Julie McIntyre has written quite a bit about this. Um, and then it, it moves further south and west. So it moves into uh, what would now be the Riverina area, into Victoria, and then eventually to Western Australia. And then, of course, um, far west is, is a much, much later. Do we reach a point 
where that that early uh, vision of export of of repaying the colonial faith does that actually happen? Do we do we start to export wines back to to Britain? Yes, but on a on a very small scale. South Africa is more um, successful in doing this. South Africa exports quite a bit of its wine to the UK. Um, from the 18th century onwards. And in fact, in the middle of the 19th century, British people are drinking more South African wine than they're drinking French. It's that popular. Mm. Australia gets a later start um, and is less successful initially. So you don't see, I would suppose, significant amounts uh, until the 1880s. So if you're a winemaker, let's say, in the Hunter Valley, you can do a few things with your wine. You can sell it locally. You can sell it to individuals. You can sell it to restaurants and hotels and so on. You can also sell it for export through a British importer to have it go directly to usually London would be the, the, the place of arrival. Or you can also sell it to ships, and that was a big part of the business. So Australian wine was exported to other Europeans through these ships. So, for example, you see a lot of instances of a British ship is docked in Sydney or in Newcastle, and they purchase wine and then they're going on to India with it. So it probably never makes it back to the UK, but it is consumed by British people. Um, and the French did that as well. They brought they bought Australian wine um, in the in the late nineteenth century. I'm not sure if they they liked it very much, but <laughs> it was um, the closest thing that they could get at the time. So there are other kinds of connections in which Australian wine is is sold across the British Empire. Was it? It's any- not at all a, like a core periphery model where it just goes, you know, London, Sydney, Sydney, London, yeah. and so on. It's moving around in a lot of different ways. Was it any good? That is a great question. It's a really interesting methodological question um, because for a few reasons. Uh, our descriptors or taste are, are very culturally specific. And so it's very hard to parse what people mean and to put them in terms that we would understand now. The writing about wine really through most of the 20th century is, is not terribly specific. The idea of the, like the, the flavor wheel or the aroma wheel comes out in the 1970s. So we don't have a lot of ways to judge what people are saying about the wines. And another thing I noticed, particularly with South African wines, is the racism that factors into British people's tasting of of South African wine. The fact that it's produced by people of color leads some British people to say, well, this is this is dirty wine. The grapes have been trod on by black feet. And therefore, this wine has an earthy characteristic that we don't like. So that comes through in some of the writing about the wine. And I think that's not necessarily a, a reflection of what it actually tasted like, but it does tell you a lot about the worldview of people consuming mm. it. Wine is always evolving. It's not necessarily getting mm. better with age, but it's always changing. So even if we had bottles of wine from, say, 1880, and we open them now, they would not taste like they would have tasted at the time. They would have changed in the bottle. So we, we can't do that. There's no way we can ever test this, really. Australian wine did win some medals at various international competitions in the 1880s and 1890s. So there is sense that some people are starting to produce some good wine. Um, And by that point, you obviously have several decades of accumulated knowledge. So it's very hard to say. I mean, one thing that I find very amusing as a historian is the rise of natural wine in the wine world. So these wines that have had minimal intervention and treatment. And for some wine lovers, natural wine is like the essence of wine. It's finally getting back to basics and stripping away um, various additives that winemakers may or may not add. I think it's really funny because I suppose that drinking natural wine is as close we're going to get as drinking 19th century wine. And if you ever drink 
natural wine, Jonathan, you'll, you'll probably know that some of them are, are fabulous and some of them, you know, taste a bit dank and it's a bit hit or miss. And I think that's probably what we're looking at for 19th, In the 19th century, century Australian wines. Yes, that I think it's it's a bit hit or miss, especially when you have to ship a wine 12,000 nautical miles and it's in a ship's hold in a wooden barrel. So there's a little bit of evaporation. You also have changing temperatures. You maybe have some rough handling. These are not prime conditions. It's not for, ideal. <laughs> for, it's really not ideal. So, you know, it's like they say in Belfast about the Titanic, it was fine when it left. So, and that possibly could have been true for wine as well. Maybe it was fine when it left, but when it got to London, it, it had it had um, deteriorated a little bit. The other remarkable thing about early Australian uh, wine growers was their 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 capacity to experiment, uh, the, the the vast yes. variety of varieties that w- were grown early. Yes, and it's kind of sad that so many of them have since then been lost. I, I love the diversity in wine. To me, discovering new grapes and new styles is, is really exciting. So I, I do feel a little pang of, of regret when I read about all these different grapes that were being used in the 19th century and experimented with. But market conditions being what they are, you know, winemakers have to have a recognizable product, mm. uh, especially if they want to produce on a, on a, a mass scale and get those economies of scale. So you know, I can understand how Australian wine has, has largely been concentrated on a smaller number of grapes. But yes, there was a great deal of experimentation. There's also probably a great deal of, of mistakes in the sense that people might have thought they had a particular grape, but they actually had a different one. Yes, it's only with yes. ge- ge- genetic <laughs> testing that we now know, you know, what some of these grapes were and which ones are related to each other. So somebody might have thought, oh, I've, I've just got this Cabernet Sauvignon that's come and it's actually something completely different. It's very difficult to know just from looking at grape leaves what kind of grape it is. It's really hard. And, you know, you have to factor in, well, I'm growing it in a new place. It doesn't taste exactly how I expected it to taste, but maybe that's the climate here. Maybe it's something that I did as the wine grower. It's very hard to say. It's an extraordinary story and, and, and remarkable that it goes to the the, the very origins of, of European arrival in this place, that this has always been a part of the the Anglo-Australian story. It has. Do you have a favourite Australian wine, Jennifer? Oh, it's like asking which is my favourite child. Oh, um, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I love to try new ones. I, I was very fortunate in researching this book. I spent over a decade writing this book and that I, I was able to visit Australia twice and go to archives and go to conferences and also visit vineyards. Um, and I tasted some great wines, and I, I can't choose a favorite, but I am very, very partial to Shiraz. I just love it as a grape. I love the French-style Syrah mm. from the Rhone, and I love the Australian variants as well, and I think they're just fantastic. I like, I like peppery wines, I like spicy wines, and those make me very happy. Jennifer, thank you, and, and congratulations on that, that, that decade well spent. <laughs> Wonderful thank research. Thank you, Jonathan. My pleasure. I hope I hope everyone enjoys it. Jennifer Regan Lefebvre, Professor of History at Trinity College in Connecticut, author of Imperial Wine, The British Empire and the Making of Wine's New World. And that's published by University of California Press. And this is Blueprint. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.